Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Would you please turn to Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. If I'm the first to tell you, I'm sorry to deliver the news that today is the end of 2023. Marks the end. I'm sure I'm not the first to tell you. But as we approach the new year, many people participate in the tradition of making a new year resolution list to eat more or eat less, eat healthier. I don't know. It depends on you. Sleep more, exercise more, use less screen time, and so on. And we don't need to discuss the effectiveness or the statistics of it or how many weeks you make it, but whether you're making a list or not, I want to suggest this morning that welcoming one another needs to be on that list. Now, this past Thursday, my wife Danny got surgery on a torn labrum in her right hip. Uh, surgery went well. She's recovering. She's not here this morning. But from the moment we walked into the surgery center in Lincoln, Nebraska, we were immediately just warmly greeted and welcomed and put at ease. They explained what was going to happen. Uh, they asked if we had any questions. They tried to make her feel comfortable. They responded to how she was feeling. They gave us updates. Uh, they explained how everything went after, and they didn't rush us out. I mean, we were just so impressed with how warm and welcoming everyone was, from the receptionists to the nurses to the doctors to the anesthesiologists to the surgeon. Lots of places care about welcome. Welcoming others is a major part of restaurants, hotels, and the broader hospitality industry. And often, they do this to get and keep their business. But is that why we should welcome? Is that why we care about it? Is that why we do it? Well, no. We welcome one another because it flows right out of the gospel message. Welcome, in verse 7 here, is used of God in Psalm 65, where God welcomes us into his holy temple, into his presence, and into fellowship. There are many examples of welcoming others in scriptures. In Leviticus chapter 23, God called Israel to leave the edges of the harvest for the sojourners and the poor. God called them to leave their livelihood in the open, to intentionally cut their profit, cut their means of living for the benefit of others. The book of Ruth is filled with kindness and welcoming. Ruth showed Naomi kindness when after the death of her husband, she left her country and her family to care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz showed kindness in his welcome to Ruth as a kinsman redeemer and then marrying Ruth. In Acts 28, Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And Paul says, the native people showed us unusual kindness as they welcomed them in the cold rain by making a fire. Paul encouraged Philemon, his friend, to welcome Onesimus, the runaway slave, as if he was welcoming himself. In other words, Paul tells Philemon to welcome Onesimus, to welcome him as if he was welcoming himself, to treat him with the same warmth and kindness and generosity. Now today we're coming to the end of this long argument in the book of Romans. Now, Paul has more to say after Romans, chapter 15, 13, important things to say, and we'll come back to that in July. But the main part of his argument comes to a close right here. Just as Paul exhorted the strong 
to welcome the weak in chapter 14, verse 1. And he rebuked both the weak and the strong for rejecting each other when God had welcomed them. So now Paul urges them to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you here in verse 7. As Paul draws this great letter of Romans to a close, he calls us all to welcome one another. We must welcome one another because a welcoming church is a microcosm of God's grand plan to unite all peoples under the rule of Christ. Or if you like, a welcoming church is proof that God is keeping his word in Christ. Now the structure is straightforward. Paul begins with an exhortation in verse 7 to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. Then he gives the reason. Because welcoming one another is proof that God is bringing all nations under the rule of Christ in verses 8 through 12. And then in verse 13, Paul gives us some motivation. We see God's promises being fulfilled in a welcoming church in verse 13. Now let's begin by reading this passage together. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's keep our Bibles open as we study God's word together. Uh, We're going to have three moves this morning. We'll go through the exhortation in verse 7, then the reason in verses 8 through 12, and then the motivation in verse 13. So we'll go through first with Paul's exhortation. Welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. As you look at verse 7, really verse 7 is a summary of all that Paul's been saying since chapter 14 in verse 1. Welcome one another. The ESV translates verse 7 pretty literally. It says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. But the sense is, is really better understood as welcome one another because Christ has graciously welcomed you. Because Christ has graciously welcomed you. Matthew 20 gives a beautiful picture of God's gracious welcome. You don't need to turn there. I'll I'll summarize it, but Jesus is teaching a parable, saying the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. He hires laborers for a denarius. That's a day's wage. And he continues this throughout the day, again at the third hour and then the sixth and then the ninth and then the eleventh. Now the workday ended, and it was time to get paid, and the laborers were paid last to first. So those who were hired at the 11th hour, who worked for one hour, received the denarius. 
a whole day's wage for one hour's work. All the other laborers received the same amount, a denarius, and they thought they'd receive more, especially those hired first. They complained, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And In the parable, it ends with the master responding, saying, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Isn't that amazing? God's grace treats us all equally. The gift of eternal life is the ultimate equalizer so that all the laborers in the vineyard will be granted it. There really is no such thing as a first or last Christian. See, the Jewish Christians might have been tempted to say, hey, we've been serving God for centuries. We've actually borne the brunt of the work in the heat of the day. We can trace our genealogy back 50 generations. We've been faithful to God. We deserve more grace, more favor, special treatment. We've been serving God for centuries, since Abraham. But that's not the case. God welcomes the Jew and the Gentile on the basis of his grace equally. And so ought we to welcome one another. You may have been at this church for 50 years, or you just walked in this church 50 minutes, minutes ago and thought, I need to trust Christ. Whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian since you were in diapers and you have evangelical roots back to Sweden, there's no first or last. We're welcome on the same basis of grace. There's no first or last in the church. And so God has welcomed us that way, equally and graciously. And so ought we to welcome one another, accept one another, receive one another in the same way. Now we move to the reason. And now part of the reason is revealed in verse 7. Welcoming glorified God. You see how it says in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's not saying so that you can have a praise meeting or you can meet in order to sing praise. The idea here is that our welcome for one another will bring praise to God. That when incompatible people actually do welcome one another, they prove that God's king is bringing together the world under his rule. When we welcome one another in the local church, it glorifies God and it's proof that God is keeping his promise to bring all nations under the rule of Jesus. Now, why will their unity bring praises to God? Well, we need to look at verses 8 and 9. Because of, for, the work of Christ, which Paul is going to view from two angles. So as we look at verses 8 and 9, first, I tell you that Christ became a servant, literally of circumcision, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And second, in order that the Gentile might glorify God for his mercy. Now both of these are connected to the promise of Abraham, the promises given to the patriarchs. His promises that Paul has primarily in mind is his promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You have to turn there. I'll read it. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's the key verse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. It was always the purpose of God that through Abraham's people, the whole world would come to rejoice in the blessing of God. And that's been God's purpose from the very beginning in choosing Abraham. So says Paul, Christ has become a servant to the Jews, as we read. He came, as Matthew 15, 24 writes, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As we see here, to show God's truthfulness. The idea here is that it's to show God is true to his promise. That God is faithful. He's righteous. God does what he said he was going to do. Paul says Christ was born of circumcision. That's to say that he was born a descendant of Abraham. To demonstrate or prove God's truthfulness to his word. God's truthfulness to his promises. To confirm his promise to Abraham. To prove God's word is true. To bring blessing to all nations, Jew and Gentile, into one nation, one family, the family of Abraham. Now Paul has already made this point in Romans. He's he's reiterating himself from chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jews and Gentiles are both saved on the same basis, by faith alone. And he's saying in chapter 4 that the blessing of faith was for both Jew and Gentile, for both circumcised and uncircumcised. And Abraham taught that. In chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This is basically asking, was it before he was a Jew, technically, or while he was a Gentile? Did God accept him by faith as righteous? And Paul then says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So it was while he was a Gentile technically speaking. So to summarize the rest of Paul's argument there, Abraham was the father of all families, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile. This has always been God's purpose throughout history. And so a welcoming church where we welcome Christians from every tribe, tongue, and nation is proof that God is keeping his promise in Abraham to establish Christ's rule over all nations. And when God's truthfulness is vindicated, God is glorified. When God's truthfulness is vindicated, demonstrated in the church, God is glorified. Now it should be quite obvious whether you're looking at human history, whether you're looking at the book of Romans. One thing that we learn is that we are prone to elevating tertiary matters in our lives. We've seen that so clearly. And if you've thought, well, why is it such a big deal? that the meat eaters and the anti-meat eaters have to worship together. Can't there just be the church of carnivores over here and we'll establish the first church of the vegetarians over here and we'll just split it all up, split up the weak, split up the strong. Well, it's a big deal. God's big plan is at stake. Paul is painting a vision for the Jew and Gentile Christians to realize and he's 
painting it for us to realize as well that a welcoming church is proof that God is keeping his promise to establish Christ's rule over all nations. And just in case we needed more evidence, Paul piles up four separate Old Testament quotations, one from every part of the Hebrew Scriptures, in order to prove that this is God's big plan. God has always had this one singular plan to unite Jew and Gentile to himself through the Messiah. Which brings us to verses 9 through 12. As we look at these verses, this is where Paul continues to drive this home. That God accepts Jew and Gentile equally on the basis of grace into one family. That confirms his promise to Abraham. So he says, uh, it says so in Psalm 18, in the writings, where God's king rejoices that he will be vindicated and end up ruling the world. We see it in verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you, Jesus essentially, among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. You will sing praise to God all over the world, among the Gentiles, because he will rule all over the world. And Moses said the same thing. The Torah says the same thing. Verse 43 in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentile, with his people. Not apart from his people. God never had two separate tracks. Never had two separate peoples or two separate churches. It's Gentiles with the Jews. Rejoice in this one God. One united Jew, Gentile, multicultural church. Our call to worship this morning. Psalm 117.1 says the same thing. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all you peoples extol him. Isaiah 11.10 says the same thing. So the prophets says the same thing. The root of Jesse, that is Jesus, the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. Welcome, even he who arises, and he was going to, to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul's point is that the entire Old Testament the law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, all speak of the same thing, this one grand plan to fulfill the promise of Abraham to bring all blessing, to bring blessing to all nations through a descendant of Abraham, through a descendant of David, in Jesus Christ, the Jesus who will one day rule the world. We know where it's going. So the church in Rome is to anticipate this final worldwide rule. Now how? By welcoming one another. Being in harmony before Christ. And we actually see that promise being confirmed and displayed in the local church. When the local church welcomes one another. It's not enough to simply say, I can praise God in my car. Or at home. Or all alone. Well, Yes, you can and you should, but what Paul has been driving towards, this whole letter, and what Paul's trying to show that the Bible has been driving towards is Jew and Gentiles together, that the church must welcome one another. The basis of God's grace as equals before God. So, brothers and sisters, welcoming, being a welcoming community is bigger than us. It's bigger than us. It's not just about our local church having a good rapport and a good reputation in the community. Although that's great. When we welcome one another, we're actually displaying the truthfulness of God to his word. That welcoming one another in the church is about God's glory in the world because it's supposed to be a microcosm of his overall plan of redemption here. 
that welcoming one another is a vindication of God's truthfulness that glorifies him. So, if that's God's grand plan, if that's the vision that Paul so desperately wants the Jewish and Gentile Christians to realize, shouldn't, should we not align ourselves with it? Should we not live this out as a local church? Let's welcome one another, accept one another, receive one another, embrace one another, forbear with one another, be patient and kind to one another. But acceptance, I should say true acceptance, is never easy. And so we're reminded that God has welcomed the Jew and Gentiles by grace, through Christ. And so let's align with that purpose. Let's do the same. Let's be his people and welcome one another. Two weeks ago, when Pastor Josh was preaching on the first six verses here in chapter 15, Josh made a point to lay down your agenda in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Well, what should our agenda be? Do you have an agenda to promote unity in this local congregation? An agenda to promote unity by welcoming people that you naturally wouldn't hang with just because you know that you share a common love for Christ and embrace of his gospel. Or rather, you have been welcomed by him and through his gospel. Does it get you excited to be with people with whom you have nothing in common with except Jesus and the gospel? What does that look like for us today? How is this lived out in our lives today? Well, is this reflected in how you welcome one another on Sunday morning or in your adult classes? How is this lived out in your life throughout the week in your community group or when you go out to lunch with others, when you invite others over to your home? Do you have an agenda to promote unity by welcoming people, practical ways to welcome people, who don't share the same interests as you just because you know that you share a common love for Christ. We are to welcome everyone into this family on the basis of faith in Christ alone. Everyone, no matter their ethnicity, their status, their education, their background, their culture, their politics, or the color of their skin, everyone is welcome in this family because this family belongs to Jesus. And we've been welcomed by Jesus. The world should be looking in at the church and saying, how in the world do those people get along with each other? They've got nothing in common. They're nothing like each other. And they're right. The church is not a collection of all sorts of people who are the same. It's a collection of all sorts of people, many of whom are very different. And as a church, we should be welcoming to everyone within the community. And hopefully, the local church will be a reflection of the peoples we find in our community. That should be our hope. Realizing this, friends, would force us to create an exclusively gospel-based community in the church. And that's what Paul's looking for here. It's not an Anglo church. It's not a homeschooling church or a Christian school church or an ESV translation church or a Republican church, or a Democrat church, or it's not a purple church. It's a Jesus church. A church community that is not based 
on our background or our social preferences and orders and experiences, but is based on having been accepted by Jesus Christ, brought into his family, embracing his gospel. So let's align with God's grand purpose and plan and reflect that now by opening our hearts and welcoming everyone on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Now finally, Paul gives us the motivation. As we look at verse 13, he pronounces this benediction to motivate us to be a welcoming church. Now, Paul has just come to the end of his argumentation in arguably the greatest letter ever written. And how does he conclude it? As Paul draws this great letter of Romans to an end, how does he conclude it? He concludes it with a prayer. A prayer which expresses a desire of his heart. Paul reminds us of the source of peace and fellowship in the church here. It's the work of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the solution for a divided congregation. And it's right at the throne of grace. As we look at verse 13, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So the motivation to welcome one another into the church as equals is hope. It's the experience of Christian hope. We see that God's the origin of hope. It says, may the God of hope. God is the one who gives hope. He's the source. He's the object of our hope. And see verse 13. See how it begins with God the Father, the God of hope, and it ends with God the Holy Spirit multiplying our hope. And how does that work? How does God provide hope? Well, verse 13 in the middle, in believing. In other words, in faith. Through faith in his promises. The promise to Abraham, which is confirmed in the Old Testament. Quotations that we just saw. And it's actually seen in the Jews and Gentile Christians praising God together. In believing, you experience God's filling of joy and peace. Through faith in his promises. Faith in God's promises produces joy and peace. This is, this is not the peace that we have with God because of his reconciliation of us in Christ. In, instead, it's rather the peace, the subjective peace that we experience because of the peace that he's already made with us. Then the result is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. That we're actually characterized by abounding hope. True unity is hard. I'm going to be honest. It's, it's hard. It's discouraging. It's disappointing. It can feel like you don't want to keep trying. And yet, only God can give this kind of unity. So Paul prays that he would do just that through his spirit. As a church becomes a welcoming place, God produces hope in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why, as we actually see God at work, we actually see his promises being fulfilled. We actually see a semblance of it here in the local church. We begin to be filled with hope that he's actually going to bring it to completion one day. It's not a vain hope that he actually can heal the divides, that he actually can reconcile people, he actually can establish peace, and that we actually see it here in the local church. And when we do, when we're welcoming, 
I have hope that God can do this. If God can do this among us, he can do it among the world. As we see God making a family in the local church, our hope will abound that God is keeping his promise to bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation under the rule and reign of Jesus. And so welcoming one another is so important. It's bigger than us. It's the key to experiencing hope and being part of the local body is a key part of experiencing that hope. The hope that God is going to bring things to a glorious end. Another practical example of this is actually membership. This is part of what we're committing to in membership, to build one another up in Christ. Membership is a commitment we make to people in the church based on their faith in Christ. Not secondary common interests or tertiary matters. If you're a member, do you see your membership this way? If you're not a member of a local church, you might want to consider it as a practical way to welcome one another. We have a class coming up in January, but if it's not here, go and find a Bible-teaching, Jesus-loving, gospel-believing church and welcome one another because it's not about you. It's about glorifying God in the church, vindicating his truthfulness in the world. It's about building one another up. It's why Jesus became a servant of circumcision. It's why he was incarnate. It's what we just celebrated last week. So that he might confirm the promises to the patriarchs and bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation under his rule and reign. And we see it here expressed in the church in time. So let's open our hearts so we can welcome one another. Because when we welcome one another, because Christ has welcomed us, we glorify God. That a welcoming church is proof that God is keeping his promises to establish Christ's rule over all nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this timely and powerful word. We thank you for the unity of, of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we recognize that this comes from you and from grace and not from us. We pray that you would build us into a people that brings you glory by vindicating your truthfulness, demonstrating that you are a welcoming God by grace. We thank you for inviting us to this fellowship with you and one another in one family, one body, one church, that we may exalt you, edify one another, and evangelize to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.